The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Fears surrounding COVID-19 and the need for social distancing have upended primaries in many states. Setting the stage for a fight over how to conduct the presidential election just about six months from now. Joining me is elections expert Richard Brafalt, a professor at Columbia Law School. It seems that a lot of people are raising the idea of voting by mail in the presidential election. How many states already do that and what's the process like? At this point, five states have moved to a just about entirely all vote-by-mail system in which at some point, several weeks before the election, state election officers mail ballots to all registered voters at their home address. I think Oregon was the first state to do that. They're all in the West. Oregon, Washington State, Colorado, Utah, and Hawaii all do something which is either entirely vote-by-mail or nearly so. Some of them have done it more recently. I think Oregon has done it now for a number of elections. And they say it works pretty smoothly and that they have not had a lot of problems, although it's, it's also fair to point out that they tended to shift to this over several election cycles. Initially, they just encouraged it, and then they moved to making it the main way to vote. Besides vote by mail, are there any other options that states can use if the pandemic is still at the point that it is come November? The main goal is going to be to reduce crowding at polling places, to reduce the dangers both to voters, voters' family members, and especially poll workers being exposed to a lot of people at once. So an alternative option that that many states also have been using for the last several years is so-called early in-person voting, where instead of everybody voting on election day, people can start to vote in person with their own ballots, bring the ballots into a location up to different states have, have different periods, but one to two weeks before election day, kind of flattening the curve, if you will spreading out the period of time so that the places where people are voting are much less crowded. You can combine these. You know, you can mail people ballots in advance and they can bring them in to some central location or to some secure location and deposit them off if they don't trust the Postal Service or if they still want to have the feeling of actually going someplace to vote. So you can have various combinations that supplement the need to actually show up at a local polling place on Election Day. About six months until Election Day, what do states have to do between then and now to make these changes a reality, either voting by mail or the other option? I'd say they they sort of fall into three categories. I would call them legal, financial, and voter educational. And I guess that has financial implications too. Legally, some states have restrictions on who can vote by mail, and they basically say you need to have an excuse you're sick, you're going to be out of state, you have a disability. And I think one thing to do would be either for the states to eliminate those requirements so that everyone could vote by mail or simply to declare for the purposes of this election that the presence of COVID-19 means that we're all at risk of being sick. So one way or the other, they either have to go to what's called no excuses absentee voting or just say for this one time, the presence of COVID-19 in the world creates an excuse. So that would be step one. 
making sure that the ability to vote by mail is an option open to everybody. Related to that, we then need to make it easy for people to get absentee ballots or vote by mail. In the states that are all vote by mail, the ballots could just get sent. Some people have some concerns about that if you're in a system where you can also still vote in the local polling places that there'll be excess ballots out there if some people don't want to use them and that could be used for fraud purposes. So a second way would be to make it easier for people to apply for a ballot instead of having to get an application, download it, print it, and mail it in to make it easier for people just to apply electronically. So at least to remove one mailing step in the process and to make the process simpler would be another important thing to do. Those would probably be the main things. There are some other issues about creating a process whereby the when you vote by mail, you generally sign the back of the ballot and you have to fill out some other things to prove that you're you. There's a higher rate of rejection for mailed-in ballots, partly because when a person fills them out, they're, they're not at the polling place, so they can't ask any questions. They can't get a, a correction right there. And so there needs to be a system in place that would enable voting administrators, if they see a problem, to get it back to the voter so the voter could correct the problem. And there are actually been litigation about this in a number of states to force them to have proper systems. One another thing to think about is just when are the ballots due back? Some states say the ballots simply have to be postmarked by election day. Others require that the ballot be received by election day. That's obviously much greater constraint on voters, especially if we're going to get a lot of people voting by mail for the first time who might think that they have until election day to vote. So I think it's important to you know get that clarified and maybe make it easier to get the ballots in by mailing them by election day. That itself has its own problems because then that makes it likely that the results will not be known for longer and some of those ballots won't be received until several days after Election Day. So that's going to require, again, changes, a better investment in how we count ballots and greater voter and public education so that people don't expect that there'll be results instantly in a close election if there are a lot of mailed-in ballots that are being mailed on Election Day. We might not get a result for several days later, and people need to, to be able to deal with that and not be upset that there isn't an announced result the next day. So, you know, there needs to be a lot of voter education about just how this works, because although there are a bunch of states that do this exclusively, in most of the states, only a relatively small number of people are voting by mail. The national trend has been to have more and more people, but that tends to be concentrated in certain states and less than one other state. I've been talking to Professor Richard Brofault of Columbia Law School about the challenges ahead in the presidential election. So how much money will individual states need if they want to convert from voting in person to voting by mail? The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. There have been some, some studies on this, and I'll call them kind of guesstimates because it's, it's hard to know for sure. But taking the states all together, well, the best estimates are like one to one and a half billion dollars. Uh, because you have to think about a bunch of things need to happen. Uh, they need to have new machinery because uh, they, the scanners for current ballots are, the ballots in vote by mail are going to look different than ballots that you see when you're voting in a polling place. Uh, for one thing, they have to be designed so they can fit in an envelope and be mailed to people. So if the ballot has to be redesigned, you need to acquire the envelopes, you need to pay for the postage, and then particularly you need to get uh, different kinds of uh, ballot uh, counting machinery because, again, it's gonna, the ballots will look different. They may be more likely to be sent to a central place. Right now, most people vote very locally. 
in local polling places. But now the odds are we want to send these ballots to a central board of elections so that many, many more ballots are going to come into a particular place to be counted. You need special machinery for that. The states that currently use vote by mail have special scanning and tabulating machinery. The other states will need something like that. They'll need to get them. And I think we also have to recognize, in addition to the to the cost of voting by mail, we're probably going to have to put some investment into person voting. A lot of people are still going to want to do that, but we need to make sure that those places are clean and safe and well-designed and have adequate sanitary equipment uh, so that there'll have to be some money spent on regular polling places in addition to the investment that's going to be needed to get everyone kind of vote by mail ready uh, by November. President Trump has already started a narrative that mail-in ballots allow cheating. Is voting by mail more open to fraud? I think that is true. I mean, I think everyone would agree that who studied this, that there's not a lot of voter fraud out there, but to the extent that there is, it's more likely to be in vote by mail because there are the ballots. There's a point where they go out of the hands of the voter before they get into the hands of the election system. So it does require more security. There is a greater possibility of fraud. Now, the states that have gone to vote by mail say that there has been very little fraud. But I think we do have to acknowledge that vote by mail does raise issues and is going to require more investment in security to make sure that the ballots aren't tampered with and that the voting is honest. I think that's, I think it's a fair concern, but it has been very exaggerated in the way it's been raised. President Trump has urged Republicans to fight against voting by mail, saying it doesn't work as well for Republicans. Is there any proof of that? I would say that there's not a lot of evidence, at least historically, that vote by mail favors Democrats over Republicans. Uh, at least I think initially vote by mail was used often by kind of business people who are out of town or by older people for whom it was difficult to get to the polling place. And they were, many of them were Republicans. Uh, vote by mail has been adopted. One of the recent states to adopt it was Utah, which is a pretty Republican state, although the other states that have it, I think, have tended to lean more democratic. And there is some evidence that, that minority voters have been reluctant to use vote by mail, and uh, they tend to lean democratic. So um, it's not clear that vote, that vote by mail tends to favor one party over another party. It certainly, when it was initially developed, it was seen as pretty much party neutral and just a way of making it easier for people to vote. So we've talked before about uh, Republicans pushing voter ID laws. How big an impact will the Tenth Circuit decision that the Kansas law requiring proof of citizenship to vote was unconstitutional, how big an impact will that have? Well, I think, it, you know, it's a pretty extensive, as you know, the, the, the Secretary of State of Kansas, the, the guy who was pushing this, Chris Kobach, is a leading advocate of this view of that there is a lot of voter fraud out there uh, and that that justifies more restrictive administrative requirements on, on voters. And this case involves an extensive review of the record. He had the chance to build up a record to show this, and they were simply unable to show it. And that's what the Tenth Circuit says, that the evidence out there is particularly of in-person voting fraud, just to make clear that the case focused mostly on the idea that people who were showing up at the polls or using somebody else's name or were voting multiple times. And the court said there's just no evidence of that to support the kinds of restrictive activities, restrictive rules that he was pushing for. So, you know, it's um, this might be the highest level court in the kind of the most kind of legally authoritative way that, that kind of went through this and in a very long opinion basically said kind of there was no there there. So how many states have voter ID laws? 
Well, voter ID kind of I, covers a lot of ground. I mean, in some sense, New York, all you're required to do is signature matching. That is a kind of voter ID. I think what people are mostly talking about now are so-called photo voter IDs, some kind of government-issued ID that has your picture on it. I think at this point, um, maybe more than half the states, maybe I don't have the exact numbers, but half to two-thirds of the states have something like that. There's all sorts of, you know, some they, some of them are more rigid than others. Some of them drastically limit the kinds of government documents that could be used. You know, whether or not you could use your student ID at a state university, some states say yes, some states say no. And some of them require, you know, in order to get that ID, much of it turns on what you need to get the ID. The problem with a lot of these IDs is, of course, it's easier for people who drive because often you, you do need to get a photo ID when you get a driver's license. But a significant fraction of the country doesn't have a driver's license. And for them, we're not a country that normally has, that requires people to carry government-issued ID for a lot of things. We may be moving to that, but traditionally, people didn't have to have that. And there may be a lot of people, uh, older people, low-income people who don't have cars, who, you know, in the course of their daily lives, don't need a government-issued photo ID. And it's, it's for them that this is particularly burdensome. And then states say, we well, can get it if you get your birth certificate. Well, a lot of people may have moved. They may not have a birth certificate. So, you know, I think people with, with, with government-issued photo ID requirements, most people can make that requirement, but there's a significant number of people who can't, and they tend to be people who are either older or poorer or have moved a lot, and for them, it's a real burden. You know, when you talk about all the things that would have to be done in order to get the states ready for a different way of voting in November, it seems like the time is very short. Are any states doing anything right now about it? I think some states are beginning to move. And actually, we just saw, uh, I think, two vote-by-mail elections that happened real fast just this week. Maryland had a special election to fill a congressional district, and that was done by mail. And Ohio, which rescheduled its its primary primary election, which was scheduled for mid-March, just as COVID-19 was beginning to peak, it was rescheduled to uh, earlier this week. And they did it as, as almost entirely vote by mail. So they moved pretty quickly. Now, again, these are only prime. The, the Maryland was a special election in a largely one party district. Uh, and the Ohio was a, a primary. And at this point, at least in terms of the, the presidential primary issue, the, the intensity of it had, had been pretty much gone. But we're beginning to see states move. And, and there's a lot of litigation out there trying to make them move faster. Uh, there was just a lawsuit filed in Texas. Texas. Uh, allows a, no excuse vote by mail for anybody 65 and older, or it's either 60 or 65 and older, I'm not sure. It's age-restricted. So there's a lawsuit saying this is age discrimination uh, against younger people. Uh, I think we're seeing both through voluntary action by state governors and state legislatures starting um, and by litigation elsewhere. The, the movement is beginning. Will it be fast enough and far enough? Will enough money be put into it? We'll know better over the next couple of months. It is still only April, at least just barely, or soon to be May. Uh, there's still some time, but you know, but time is of the essence. Even before COVID-19, there were rumblings that there was going to be a cloud over the election. People were talking about cyber hacking and things like that. So does it seem like with COVID-19, there really is going to be a cloud over the election, no matter what states do? It's going to be a very stressful election. I mean, there was a lot of stress last time. I think, frankly, any election which is close, and certainly the current polling data suggests that November will be close, there'll be a lot of doubts. There'll be a lot of concerns about fraud, about hacking. 
certainly about delays. I do think that even without a lot of legal change, I think you are going to see no matter what a lot, a lot more vote by mail. In those states where it's an option, where it's already an option, many more people are going to opt for it because of concerns about going to the polls. Those ballots are going to come in and, they're going to, and they take longer to count. And I think we will see in a number of states where it's close that we may not be able to have results on election night or Wednesday morning. You see this frequently in California, which is not all vote by mail, but has a lot of vote by mail. You know, ballots keep coming in uh, and they're still counting them, you know, days and weeks later until they're all fully resolved. Again, California the nas- for national elections has not been a close state. But I think if we're looking at some close states and a lot of mail-in ballots that are, even if they're arriving by election day, they may take time to count. And if, and if they're postmarked election day, they're going to be arriving for several days afterwards. Can President Trump move the election as former Vice President Joe Biden expressed concerns about? There is, I'll put it this way, there is absolutely no authority for President Trump to reschedule the election. No legal authority. What he actually tries to do is unclear to me, but there is absolutely no legal authority for the president to reschedule the election. Um, Congress could change certain things. The true election, of course, is when the, when the electors meet in the Electoral College. Uh, and that's a date that's set by statute. Uh, it's, I forget the, what date it's going to be this year, but it's always a date in the middle of December. Um, and that Congress has some wiggle room if it wants to to reschedule the date in which people go and vote. But that date is set in the statute, and that could be pushed back a little bit. But at some point on January 20th, the president's term expires. And there is certainly nothing in the Constitution that allows him to stay a day, uh, an hour past noon on January 20th unless he's reelected. Thanks, Rich. That's Professor Richard Brafalt of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show weeknights at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.